0: Yes, indeedy. Welcome to the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. And this is episode number 38, coming at you live and direct from the Chesapeake Bay, just outside of Richmond, VA. And we got a good one for you, folks. So grateful you are tuning in. Episode 38 of the Upful Life Podcast, brought to you in part by Herb and Music, the healing of the nations. Herb and Music is a fresh new online periodical that seeks to explore the storied history between the worlds of sound art, spirituality, and raised vibration. They intend to celebrate the people, the songs, and the stories behind the music, marijuana, and movements. The concept is intentional, it's a feature-based throwback to magazine journalism and topical coverage that really digs deep into our intellect and consciousness. Cannabis and music have been cosmically intertwined since the beginning of time. Modern music and marijuana culture have enjoyed a chromatic relationship, a defiant righteous dalliance between these once forbidden fruits. Recent features have included Redman, Adam Schmeen's Smirnoff of Lettuce, and some choice wellness-oriented essays from Path to Panacea, The Gnome Co., Village Witches, and more to come. Check out urbanmusic.com, H-E-R-B-A-N music.com, Urban Music, The Healing of the Nations also want to send a shout out and show love to save our stages the national independent venue association hashtag save our stages Talked to you a little bit about it last podcast uh, the national independent venue association or neva is now partnering with youtube for uh, for the neva emergency relief fund you can still donate you can still contribute raise money, raise awareness to save our stages. We want to send love to our friends out there in Pittsburgh, Gray Area Productions and the Rex Theater, which sadly had to close a couple weeks ago. Ben and Evan from the Rex and Gray Area are dear, trusted friends and contributors to the culture and the music community far beyond just the Pittsburgh area. So, Yeah, it's tough to see these venues close and more and more each day, week, and month as we continue with no real end in sight here. That's why we need to save our stages. Saveourstages.com And lastly, want to show love to headcount.org and of course the partnership with Live for Live Music and Democracy Comes Alive, which raised money for... Voter awareness and voter registration. Headcount.org has been around for, I think, like 2004 or three. They've always had their thumb on the pulse of the music, culture, and community. Uh, Headcount stages voter registration drives at concerts and runs programs that translate the power of music and culture into real action. Headcount is a nonpartisan organization. They use the power of music to register voters, to promote participation in democracy. Headcount reaches young people and music fans where they already are, at concerts and online, to inform and empower. So please support and uh, check out headcount.org. And we thank Andy Bernstein and his team for doing the good work. (laughs) Headcount.org. podcast episode 38 want to send a huge shout out and deep bow of gratitude to my man the diesel carl denson for sliding through episode 37 was such a honor and privilege to have him on the show after all these years all this music all the miles and uh, the feedback has been wonderful so thanks to carl for sharing. And of course, thanks to everyone for tuning in. Uh, Please rate, review, subscribe to the Up For Life podcast. You can do that at Apple Podcasts. That's really helping out the show, getting the algorithms sent in this direction and bring new listeners to the show. So please subscribe to the show at your podcast player of choice or rate and review at Apple Podcasts and iTunes. And of course, you can email me directly with feedback, constructive criticism, ideas, and such at b.gets at upfullife.com. That's the letter B dot G-E-T-Z at upfullife.com. And I uh, also want to let folks know I was a guest on a brand new podcast. It's like their fifth ever episode. It's called Almost Familiar. And... Wes and Elizabeth host that show, and they were kind enough to invite me on to tell my tale, my story, my journey, professionally, personally, musically, spiritually, etc. So it was a wonderful experience to be on the other side of the equation, and you can check that out at Almost Familiar Podcast. With that, we'll get into episode 38. Of the Upful Life podcast. You actually heard in the uh, read over in the beginning after the Calvin Valentine Mazeltov theme song that I play every week. Uh, you heard the beginning of Applecats set from Burning Man 2013 called Circles and Threes with that Disney like opening into the foreboding deep. Meditative dubstep. So, uh wanted to show some love and shine a light to Applecat. You can check her out on SoundCloud. And then you heard Amber mark her take on Nirvana's timeless heart shaped box. And that was a recommendation I found through episode 38's guest, uh, Derek Barris. And To begin with, you're actually hearing Derek's Earthrise Sound System project in the background right now. Track is called Rama. I'm going to play a few moments of that and then I will introduce Mr. Barris. Earthrise sound system right there. And a member of that squad is my guest Derek Barris, who is an accomplished author, journalist, podcaster, a movement yoga instructor. And at the forefront of writing and researching and discussing the ritual and medicinal use of psychedelics, uh, the reason I had Derek on the show is because I came to know his work through the incredible Conspirituality Podcast. Now, uh, what is Conspirituality, right? You you probably have heard the term or even of the podcast as it's wildly popular in its first year. Um, I've been troubled, concerned, frightened by the developments I've been noticing in Uh, festival culture and spiritual culture communities and that extends over to the wellness and yoga diaspora as well much uh, akin to what we're seeing on a macro level in this country with uh, the political division and ideological extremities the racism and qn and conspiracy theories anti-semitism and it's rampant in the burning man world and festival communities ecstatic dance even in deadhead and fish communities as such Um, it's prevalent everywhere Uh, there is an infiltration and infection and indoctrination and it's frightening and uh many folks have sounded the alarm including uh, the host at Conspirituality Podcast. Now, Derek is a multifaceted author. He's a media expert, fitness instructor. He's based in LA, born in Jersey, spent a good deal of time in New York City at the turn of the millennium. Uh, he's originally a music journalist and has pivoted into a number of other uh, important imperative endeavors. Uh he's interviewed over a thousand artists uh, as a world magazine world music magazine editor and journalist He started as a crossword puzzle editor but he's uh, written for dozens of publications including mtv rolling stone the village voice women's health yoga journal but what really grabbed my attention was that he'd written for relics magazine and herb urb herb which is a seminal electronic music periodical that i adored and bought at barnes and nobles on a monthly basis Um, he's also been in Trace and Remix and Accelerator, which is another great electronic music mag of yesteryear. He's currently a columnist for Big Think, which is an awesome website, um, that I encourage you to check out where he writes on myriad topics. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, he, uh, has this wonderful Earthrise Sound System musical project which i encourage everybody to check out and he just dropped his latest book called hero's dose the case for psychedelics in ritual and therapy which is out now he's also written whole motion training your brain and body for optimal health back in 2017 And his bio has a ton more that I could go through, but those are the bullet points, the most salient uh, efforts and endeavors to my listenership. He's also shared the stage as a DJ producer with a number of my faves, including Jamiroquai, which you'll hear about in the interview, Karsh Kalei, Sabah, rest in peace, Auntie Balas, whom we love, Brazilian Girls, um sidestepper and we get into a little bit of his music uh history and world music journey he was the music supervisor for a breakthrough documentary that i know many of you have seen called dmt the spirit molecule and of course most prevalent and timely right now he's the co-host of conspirituality podcast of which you're hearing the basis for their theme song Kanyamo medico Earthrise Sound System featuring Metza Many and pardon my pronunciation, but Jonan Guena, and that's found on their record called Rock Beats Paper. So I know that was a whole lot that I just dropped on you, and, and I I can't uh, discuss conspirituality without also acknowledging uh, Derek's tremendous co-hosts, in addition to Derek Paris. Uh, The show is created and produced by Matthew Remsky and Julian Walker. They each have roots in the yoga and wellness and spiritual communities and extensive work that they've each done individually and collectively. And their podcast is an absolute revelation. And I'd say that about Derek himself. Um, In the six-ish months that I've gotten familiar with his work, and his energy and his voice—it's inspired me in profound and rewarding ways, as a writer, as a podcaster, as a thinker. Um, just seeing how he's carved his own path with his pen and his voice and his, you know, activism and energy—it's fucking inspiring, and. Lucky for me, through uh, the naughty princess, Jasmine Fraser's sister, Hannah, the mermaid, Hannah Frazier, she's also uh, an activist and a voice in the community and working towards the similar goals that Derek and myself and many of you are. Um, she made a post celebrating how incredible spirituality Podcast is. I chimed in how much I liked this uh, small aside Uh, Relevant to Bangra Crunk Music And uh, that's how I got connected With Derek Barris directly And he uh, is a busy man As you well have heard uh, Got a lot of irons in the fire But he made time for the Up Life podcast And that really warmed my heart And inspired me to prepare A thorough and Impassioned conversation uh, With him which took place last week while I was in North Carolina uh, visiting my fiancé's family. A very red, very Republican region. So the irony was not lost on either of us. We have a great deal of uh, symbiotic connections in our paths. And uh, it was an honor and a privilege to speak with Derek Barris for over an hour. So without further ado, enjoy the end of this Earthrise Sound System Joint, Kanyamo Medico, and then we'll hear from Mr. Derek Barris, co host of Conspirituality Podcast and columnist at Big Think. Wanted to take a moment and thank you for making time for the Upful Life podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. I look forward to talking.
0: Yeah, and I got to tell you, um, just finding your work by way of the Conspirituality podcast and then sort of going from there has been such a wonderful resource and uh, just almost like a place to go. You have a very calming, soothing voice and demeanor. Uh, when you broadcast on your podcast. And from there, I found you on Big Sync and a number of articles that you've written. So uh, I can't stress enough how just impressed I am with your voluminous catalog and portfolio. And of course, how potent and important the work that you're doing is in this moment in time.
1: I really appreciate that. You know, these are, especially with the Conspirituality podcasts, these are all themes that have been prevalent for a very long time, and I've observed and noticed. And like with a lot of things, it, it takes the culture sometimes a little bit of shaking up to notice uh, the, the basically the origins of how these situations are created. And I have to say, even though I've observed certain patterns. In the wellness industry and in yogis in particular, I did not expect it to go this dark, uh, this quickly. I didn't think the situation would would go in that direction. So I think really what's going on is we're just trying to uh, make sense of it ourselves as it's happening in real time.
0: And I would have to concur that nobody, I don't think, whether how much you're paying attention or kind of just going about your business, I don't think anyone really anticipated how far and how fast and and that's a big part of what makes your program and uh, the conversations and dialogues that you've opened up through conspirituality and before that on earthrise so important is that none of us were prepared to react uh respond to this so close to you know our various communities and and people we know and love the. as as well as the macro sense with the country and the election. So, yeah, it's been a real boon to, I know, my community, my friends and family and anybody that I've turned on to uh, your podcast and your work has thanked me and uh, extrapolated further from there. But I think before we explore that stuff, and I'm anxious to do so and have a long list of topics that I'd want to go over, I think – I want to ask you to basically introduce yourself, because I've, I found so many similarities. Uh, I'm, I was also born in Jersey and began my journalism career, if you want to call it that, as a music writer, and that's still my primary area of focus, but it has a bit more breadth, you know, 20 years in, and I really admire the work that you do, and I know that you have similar roots, Jersey and in music journalism, so if you wouldn't mind, maybe just as little or as much as you want to better familiarize uh, my listeners with, you know, your humble beginnings.
1: Well, as you said, uh, yes, we are fellow Jersey residents, or I was a resident for a long time before moving to Los Angeles. I, I guess we can start with, with writing and music. I actually didn't start as a music writer. Well, my first pieces at Rutgers was as a music writer, but I actually was a political journalist for a brief time for a number of papers who probably remember like the Home News and then the Star-Ledger and then some local newspapers as well around central New Jersey. And then I got a job in Princeton as an entertainment writer in 1998 and that changed my writing focus because as much as I've always been politically engaged, I really just did not enjoy talking to politicians and council people and things of that nature. I'd rather, I'd prefer talking to artists. And that really set off my my path as a writer and as a journalist. And I spent the next decade or so writing first about rock and hip-hop. And in Princeton, there's a lot of theater and sculptors and plays. I talked to a lot of playwrights as well. And then I moved to New York City, Jersey City specifically, but I worked in Manhattan for a long time as first a crossword puzzle editor And then I worked as an editor for the Discovery Channel for a few years. But then I really, things came together when I became a world music journalist. And I spent the next decade of my life working in international music, which is something that I had started to explore, but never to the depths that I did. And that really changed my perspective on life, on cultures, on the world. And so much of my philosophy came through talking to hundreds of artists from around the planet, it opened my mind in ways I didn't even think possible. And at some point around 10 years ago, that shifted because, as you're probably aware, earning a living writing about music is is reserved for the very few at this point. Uh, So then I switched to health and science journalism, as I have been a movement instructor for almost two decades now. And that was always also something that fascinated me, and I was able to secure writing gigs, writing about health and science, and even now, uh, I'm very soon, I'm working for a startup, a tech startup, but my main job is writing about flow states and the psychology of flow states, as well as productivity and mindfulness. So all of these pieces have just been a continual um, Journey through all of the different passions that I have, and fortunately, being equipped with the skills of being a researcher and a writer have made me, it uh, <laughs> makes that appealing to employers who are looking for the kind of work that I do. So, I'm, I'm pretty lucky that I've been able to stay focused on doing what I love and find ways to support myself in the process.
0: Wow, yeah, that's the dream right there. Uh, you know, you you found a way to continue continue in your areas of expertise and passion and also you know uh, earn a living and do so something you can be proud of and hang your hat on and as somebody I, I still call myself an aspiring journalist even though I've been at it nearly as long as you um, i I find it inspiring to see someone like yourself really carve your own path and what I've come to know in the short time that I've you know read your work you know six months or so with the podcast and, and is really you haven't Sold your soul or compromised your ideals or convictions. Quite the opposite. You've imparted them in a way, in a language that everybody can easily understand. And that's what I meant when I said hearing your voice on the pod and and what it's speaking and the messages and the data and the perspective, but delivered in a very soothing, calming, and warm uh, intonations. It's, It's just wonderful. And then from there, you know, reading the different topics that you've explored uh, from that perspective and the mindset is, is just inspiring. So I was just wondering, you know, how you got from point A to point B. So I wanted to just ask, because I was reading your bio and I'm a lifelong Jamiroquai fan. And you mentioned you shared this stage because we're a big Jamiroquai house and the for Life podcast does a lot of Jamiroquai stuff. What, what was that connection
1: Well, when I started working as a world music journalist, I got tapped in very early. I was working... One of my closest friends was the publicist for Putumayo World Music, and that's how I got... That's how I actually got started on that path, because he introduced me to the person that hired me for the magazine. And shortly after that gig came about, I just got tapped into the circles of... Uh, Indian and Indian-American musicians around 2000-2001 that were circulating known as the Asian Massive, so Kirsch College, Heavy Sabah, Medieval Pundits. And I befriended them. I ended up touring a bit with them as a DJ. I started spinning world music. I had a weekly party with Kirsch in the Lower East Side for about a year. That was very successful and a lot of fun. And so through that, Uh, I became friends with a number of labels and artists, so not only was I writing about it, I was also working as a music photographer and a DJ, so I really immersed myself in that world and from that, I had my own sets that I would spin, but one of my closest friends had a uh, a DJ trio called Globe Sonic and uh, Fabian Al-Sultani and Bill Bragan and then there was a third member, Benjamin, who ended up dropping out and so I just kind of snuck in and took his place and I ended up DJing with these guys for 15 years. And so we, we had a number of residencies in New York, we had some really great parties. Uh, But that Jamiroquai gig was, uh, we were friends with the founders of Giant Step, and they wanted us to open up for them. So Jamiroquai was playing at the Nokia Theater in Times Square for two nights, and so we opened. Uh, The first night, it was just Fabian and myself, and then the second night, it was just me, because Fabian actually had to catch a flight that morning. Uh, So that was the connection. That was some, two of the biggest shows I've ever played, for sure, in terms of crowd, and uh, Definitely a little bit unnerving, I don't mind being in front of a crowd, but when you're opening an act and everyone's waiting for, for an act like Jamaica you know, definitely, uh, <laughs> it was a lot to handle, but it went really well, and it was, it was a warm response, and I, you know, got to talk to him for a few minutes backstage, which was great, and yeah, I'm, I've, I've been a big fan since the early 90s, so that was definitely a highlight in terms of my musical career.
0: Uh, would you believe I was at those shows? I actually wrote a story about it for Jambase.com. So, you know,
1: okay. small world,
0: small <laughs> yeah. world. I'll have to send you yeah, the review sometime.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I also during those years I was writing a lot for Relics, so we probably had some crossover there too with Jambase.
0: Yeah, I would think so. Um, that was on my my list was Kars Uh through Sound Tribe Sector Nine. I had seen him perform a number of times and a DJ set or two, so I'm sure we crossed paths one way or another. And of course, we opened Relics, up for, Sound
1: Tribe. We opened up for Sound Tribe as well at one time. Um, I, and I forget what venue it was, but uh, yeah, I remember that as well.
0: That's awesome. And, and with regard to uh, to Relics and that whole scene, I, I, of course, listened to your uh, interview that you did with your co host with Jeff Krasno, and you kind of made a flippant side remark to Jeff that you remembered him by way of his brother Eric and Soulive, and that's like my neighborhood, and it kind of got my first plugs in the scene, was through Velour and Soulive and Lettuce and such, so small world, and it's pretty cool that, you know, this may have not been the first time that I crossed your path in the arts community, so right on. No, definitely not. I want to kind of transition to the here and now a little bit, because obviously that's why I reached out. At what point in time, because we talked about how far we've fallen and how fast, but I always had some reservations that I kept to myself. And part of the magic and beauty of Conspirituality and your work is you've had no problem addressing and uncovering these troubling themes that reared their ugly heads uh, as COVID uh, happened. So I'm curious, do you, did you have any uh, moments in time say in the past dozen years since you've been a uh, uh, transitioned to working uh, more exclusively in the wellness field when did you start to realize that hey maybe the foundation here maybe some of these ideas are more dangerous than they are uh, righteous
1: I would say that the dangers that I identified early were predominantly around capitalism's influence in yoga which really started in the 1980s well before uh, I even became involved with it But it definitely, social media just gave it fuel like I hadn't ever imagined possible. The selling of yoga is not new. That really started in the 1940s uh, before that. And, And before that in some ways, but it was much, much different type of yoga. In the 1940s, that's when the sort of fascination with the physical fitness aspect of yoga started. And let me... Say that I have no problems with people doing yoga. If they only want to do it for physical health, I have no problem with that. I'm not sort of purist in any capacity as an instructor or as a fan of yoga. So, but there, but there is also a, a way that companies have taken advantage of it. I remember one time seeing a train company. I was on the Long Island Railroad and there was an advertisement for uh, a just a, like in a cellar or something, and they, the person was doing a yoga pose in the seat to kind of display how much room that they had. And at that point, I was like, "Oh, okay, okay." They're, they're, the appropriation is really bad now, and it's, it's it's more than that. And what happened is there was an entire generation that happened after I started, which happens with everything, so that's not an outlier, but. Instagram changed yoga in a way that it purely focused on the branding rather than any sort of message. And so instead of having, especially with my training as a photographer, if I want to show off a sunset or a mountain or something beautiful, I'm behind the lens and I take the photo of it to represent what I'm looking at. And that completely shifted when everyone had a camera in their pocket. So all of a sudden, you have a beautiful mountain, but then the person felt it necessary to put themselves in it to make them the focal point of that beauty. And so you have this very egocentric focused (laughs) platform in that sense, and yet all of the comments that they write are about transcending the ego and spirituality and that that wedge that happened there I knew that there were a lot of problems with it the the branding of it the the idea that a, every individual has to be a brand they're their own business and as someone who works for myself I know you know I know what it's like to have to hustle and have a lot of gigs but there's just something gross about Appropriating the words and the messages when you're talking about transcendence and really you're just focused on yourself. And I think that mindset helped to create the conditions for what we're experiencing. And that, that's sort of half the story. The other half is, and uh, Julian Walker, my co host, and I, we started a website in 2012. Uh, it was, we were two of five that started it. And it was called Yoga Brains. And it was specifically five of us who were all either yogis or yoga instructors who were talking about the lack of political engagement in the yoga community broadly. At the same time, Sean, Hala, and Suzanne uh, had started Off the Mat into the World. So they were doing real-world work on getting yogis to understand the social and political relevance of what it means to be a yogi. And we had this website going on. And we were yelling into a void back then, and we had a small following, but it definitely was nothing like what happened with conspirituality, and again, because I don't think the culture was ready to recognize the importance of politics uh, in, in life, and I think that has to do with the fact, and again, we're about the same age, we're from the same area, and you know it's possible, up until recently, at least the last few years, to live In America, as a white person, where, I see it for myself, but I, I don't know all of your cultural background, your ethnic background, but to live in a way where politics really doesn't affect you. You can live your life without voting. You can live without knowing who your congressperson is. It doesn't matter. And that early training I had in political journalism where I had to go to school board meetings and zoning meetings and see what happens on a granular basis in community politics opened my eyes to uh, what it takes to actually function as a society. So in that sense, I have always remained politically engaged since then because I know the importance of it. But in general, the yoga community has had a certain sense of privilege that I don't think they've recognized as a privilege when you don't have to partake in your democracy. And what happens in situations like that, when, a, when an entire, you know, this isn't just the yoga community, but because it's what I've been tracking and part of, I can speak intimately about it. I'm sure there are many other communities this is affected in the same way. When you're not engaging, when you have a country where not even two out of every three people vote every four years or at all, well, off your elections, forget about it, um, then you have, you have the conditions where people can exploit that. And we're seeing that's what's happened with the Republican Party. This is not new. What, what is going on right now has been happening forever, but we can point to the John Birch Society in the 60s, and then we can also really look at the fundamentalist Christian movement in the 90s, whose entire role, and I remember reading about this in the 90s, training politicians and judges and lawyers specifically to go out and overturn Roe v. Wade and other issues like, like prayer in school. Like, they've been working on this for decades. And here you have this, this Instagram yoga culture who can't even think in minutes. Right, Because all that matters is this next branding opportunity, the next photo, this next thing to come up. And so you, you have this culture that has expendable income, and they're, they're checked out politically. And then you have this movement that's been going on for decades that's been trying to game the political system. And guess where we are right now? We're seeing the consequences of that in real time. And we're about to put a Supreme Court judge into place who is probably going to help to overturn abortion rights in America. Um, So that's a very long answer, but it's a complicated topic, and there it's not just like there's one response to it. The conditions have been brewing for a long time, and now all of a sudden you have a community, I'm speaking of the yoga and wellness community, that was always skeptical of power because they didn't understand power in the first place, and they're now being told that they can't do things that they've been accustomed to doing their entire lives, really in the name of public health, but because we have an administration that's completely ineffective, it, it, the and, and from the top conspiracy theories are coming down, then they've just gone off into conspiracy world. And all of those factors have factored into what we call conspirituality and. This uh, this um, tendency for certain people in this community to be sucked into these crazy conspiracies, and they bought in really quickly, as you're well aware.
0: Indeed, yes, and you're right. I am a white male, so I totally identify with the privilege and the ability to float along. And I would even say that that was probably my sort of Epicurean mindset for most of my twenties even though I, I was pretty politically active around the 2000 election, I was very, uh, I would say like disillusioned by that whole experience and allowed myself to not give a fuck for far too long. Uh, that said, uh, yeah, it's, it's remarkable that you can really trace uh, it back so deep into the 60s and John Birch and such. But, you know, I remember, you know, the satanic panic of the 80s with like heavy metal music and, and that whole Reagan era sort of, uh, satanic scare that is not unlike what we're, uh, going through right now with the conspiracy theories and QN. And, and, and I actually really had a front row and unfortunately personal and emotional experience with this in real time. Uh, when I moved to California, I lived in Grass Valley, Nevada city for five ish years and, uh, really immersed myself in the ecstatic dance community there. Uh, I, I feel like I, I, get a lot out of that, uh, the ecstatic dance itself, not unlike what many folks get from yoga, of which I'm much more of a beginner-intermediate. But that said, uh, there was a uh, an extreme division that came to a head with a sort of renegade rave that some ecstatic dancers from the community threw over Fourth of July weekend, which uh, turned into a spreader event, and the entire community, beyond just ecstatic dance, I mean, there were uh, council meetings on the topic, and... Of course, social media, as you duly noted, uh, exacerbates the fire in an instant. And it was very ugly and, and sad and maddening to, uh, watch people who I know and care for deeply and, and see their, you know, their ideology bared, uh, for what it was, uh, which is, you know, in line with, all that you're addressing on conspirituality from qn and on down and and that was a real wake-up call for me because i was reading and listening and I of course been paying attention to q for some time uh knowing it was headed somewhere bad but i never imagined that and again i'm not dialed and studied as you uh, so i don't really see it coming and then it's here and it is a major problem that's you know really causing the type of divisions that I've never really experienced in my adult life uh, in our family and so on and I wanted to ask because uh, naturally you have a book coming out about psychedelics you're you're open in the dialogue of sort of the the modern uh, medicinal and ritual sense of psychedelic use in the here and now um, and I'm excited to read your book that comes out it came out like two days ago am I right
1: Yes, came out on uh,
0: Monday. What role uh, do you feel like the unchecked use of psychedelics or the uh, co- you know co-opting of plant medicine ritual? Uh, how does that figure in? Because to me, a lot of the folks that I've noticed uh, off the deep end with the conspiracy theories are are some that have expansive psychedelic uh, behavior.
1: Stanislav Grof, who I don't personally agree with he's a little metaphysical for me overall but he has a lot of he did a lot of port work and a lot of uh, one of his terms has uh, always resonated which is a non-specific amplifier which is what he turned psychedelics and just, just as in yoga, we, we talked about this, Matthew talked about this with Sean Korn, there's this idea that if you practice yoga, that you're automatically going to be liberal and for all these liberal causes. And yoga is a non specific amplifier as well. I mean, there is an ethical back, uh, backbone to it, but that's, not everyone pays attention to that. So psychedelics, the thing about psychedelics is when, you, when you're in, you know, you can either, you can, I've done, them a lot over the last 26 years, uh, predominantly mostly in the 90s, but it's still part of my life and regular, maybe twice a year practice. That you can do them individually or with friends, or you can do them in a ritual context. And in both situations, you're opening yourself up, you're vulnerable. That's the set and the setting, and whatever mindset you have going in and the environment and people you do them with matters. And when you are in a situation where you're doing them, say, in a ritual setting, and the guide might not have the best intentions or they might be a predator or they might just like to mess with people's heads, which is completely possible. I was in a peyote ceremony once that I left early because the, I, the guide was just... I didn't know him going in and that was my mistake because usually I know the people I'm going with, but I had an opportunity and I took it and it was, it was the wrong choice, but fortunately I had enough familiarity with these substances that I, you know, was able to get out of there without any real problems. But when you're in these situations and you you, you, you know, like anything, these communities are bubbles and if you are in a community that's prone to conspiratorial thinking anyway, a lot of people who gravitate towards psychedelics are skeptical of systems of power, sometimes rightly so, but sometimes that can, again, get you into trouble. And it's just, it becomes a uh, sort of self perpetuating ideology that you're engaged with. So if you think that there are aliens that are running the government and then you're on psychedelics, all psychedelics, too, as serotogenic, serotogenic substances, is they, they put you into a certain mindset. They tamp down the ego center in your prefrontal cortex. And they open you up, but they don't put anything into you. They just bring out what was already in there. That's why they're so effective in the right environments for addiction or therapy or PTSD or counseling. They're very effective because they make you look at your shadows. And if if you are having someone who is helping you through that, one dose of say MDMA, it's been let's, say, let's take Ibogaine for example. Uh, Iboga has helped people conquer addiction in one dose. And the reason is, is because they see something in themselves that they want to change. The work of psychedelics is always done in sobriety. All it's doing is showing you a way forward. Whether or not you change and do it is going to be up to you. But there, there are opportunities, there are rituals where you can change your mindset. And that's really important, but guess what? If your mindset is that there are aliens or there's a child sex trafficking ring that's ruining the world and you're around people who also believe that and that's what gets amplified in in ritual, that's only going to confirm your pre-existing bias going in. And so they are therapeutic in the right circumstances, but like anything, people don't always take them in the right circumstances, and they probably don't even realize what what they're being led into, and again, when you, when you have a blood experience on a psychedelic, and if you're being told by what you believe to be some spirit force that's telling you that there are these alien child sex traffickers, then you're just going to move forward with that, and that's what I think is happening in at least some of the communities that I'm, I've heard about. I can't say my own communities because it, it hasn't gotten to that point with the people that I run with.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there as well. I would say my own you know routine with psychedelics is not unlike yours. I was a bit more frequent and maybe reckless in my younger years, but it remains a part of my life in the right time, place, and environment. But uh, unfortunately, I, uh, I struggled with pharmaceutical opiates for a long time. Uh, I don't any longer. And uh, I am well aware of the, the magic and the sort of beauty of, of Iboga, read, read about it and, and considered it in my own journey. And I was curious because I know you've written recently about benzos, which was never my thing, but obviously is a major issue and is prevalent in all kinds of communities, and of course, you know, pharmaceutical opiate addiction and addiction in general. Uh, do you find that there is a connection with people who are, are wounded or struggled with addiction or are in the throes and some of this magical thinking and cons- embrace of conspiracy theories and radicalization?
1: Absolutely. I, and I will, I will always point out when I'm speaking about data and when I'm speaking about either anecdote or just an idea that I have, and this is purely an idea, this is speculation completely, but I would not be surprised if at least a fair amount of people who are really spiraling into these conspiracies are on some sort of antidepressants. And that that just comes from the fact that 19% of adults, and that is a statistic in America, are on an antidepressant every year. So you're probably dealing with a, a good majority of people uh, who, are, who are behind these or really being taken by this, who are on these drugs. And, you know, what I realized, like, when I started writing the book about a year ago, last fall is when I started, and I wanted to write a memoir, because I had some pretty intense experiences, and I wanted to share them just as a storyteller because I thought they were interesting. And I realized, though, that if I were going to write about psychedelics during this time, I would have to talk about their therapeutic uses and both what they helped me through, but also what they're helping other people through. And then if I wanted to tackle that, then I had to talk about why the current mental health protocols are not working. And so that led me into antidepressants and benzodiazepines and antipsychotics. And just going through a bit of the history of the psychiatry industry in the 20th century, which is quite shady and very, very opportunistic uh, and that is not a conspiracy theory. Because the thing about uh, trials is that they are public knowledge. You can go find all of the trials in which these drugs were approved by the FDA and you can read them yourselves. So all of that research is available. There's nothing hidden about that. But most people don't spend their days reading through trials and understanding how these drugs even became um, legal in the first place or how they became sanctioned and used. So that I spend a few chapters in my book discussing that and what that led to. And one example I like to use, and I think it's important, because I suffered from anxiety disorder for 25 years. For a while, for about a six month period, it was crippling and I, I got on Xanax. My doctor, Recommended it. I got on it, and fortunately, I had enough wherewithal to not take it every day or every time I felt like I wanted it. I really only used it as needed, and that is what these drugs are designed for. So some people use them safely; they work, and they get off them without a problem. I'm a case study in that, and I know other people who've been like that. So that's fine, but. The Xanax trial, when it became approved by the FDA, so first of all, to get a drug approved by the FDA, you need to have two clinical trials showing efficacy over placebo. Now, how much efficacy doesn't matter. It could be 2%. It's, it's as long as it's more effective than a placebo. So one of the Xanax trials was a 14-week trial. At four weeks, Xanax was outperforming placebo. At eight weeks, they were even. And at 14 weeks, placebo was outperforming Xanax. So the pharmaceutical company said, well then let's just throw out the eight week and the 14 week data. They only submitted the four week data, it got approved. You have one of the most addictive substances that is sanctioned in benzodiazepines and Xanax particularly, but all benzos, that is only shown to work for four years but you have people that are on them for years and decades and what it's doing to their body and the consequences as they age is horrific. And that you, when I started writing about this topic, I had a number of recovery groups start following me on Twitter and talking to me and sharing my articles and people sharing their personal experiences with, with them, which are horrifying. And they, all of these drugs change who you are. You know, we tend to think of identity as sort of this fixed thing, but if you were to like look at video of yourself for 20 years ago and think about your mindset, we're constantly shifting. And it's not just ourselves, it's a relationship to the environment. So the set and setting doesn't really only apply to psychedelics, set and setting applies to any substance. We can talk caffeine or nicotine. It changes who you are. And these drugs are changing people in, are in a, really a troublesome manner. When you have six million children in the United States on some sort of ADHD medication at a time when their prefrontal cortex isn't fully formed and it's influencing their brain chemistry in those ways, you're just setting yourself up for a, a lifetime of dependence. Uh, some people, some people in it don't like. To, be, to call it addiction because it makes it seem like they got addicted to the substance. They call it dependence because they were put on these substances and then they can't get off them because they have come to depend on them. And the, come, the withdrawal symptoms are so bad that they can't even, they, they, they have no way of, of, of tapering because there is no sanctioned tapering protocol. These drugs and doctors don't know how to get people off them safely so they just avoid the topic they don't even touch it they just prescribe 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 so think about that if you have almost 20 percent of u.s adults on these drugs every year that is also what is you know these are people who are engaged in politics on social media like anything else and it's not to say that some people aren't helped by them but i absolutely think that it is helping to create the circumstances that we find ourselves in
0: the rewiring of the benzos, and you're right, with regard to the, you know, the tapering or uh, coming off detoxing from those drugs uh, is nightmarish and life-threatening, really unlike any drugs, including opiates, you know, far worse with the seizures, and and it's it's maddening to think that, that people so young and, as you said, undeveloped with their brain and, of course, emotionally and and it's socially, and then, you know, signing up for that, what is in essence a a life sentence with those drugs, it's it's hard to imagine that that's the type of thing that gets sanctioned, but that's sort of an underlying, as a microcosm, I should say, for, you know, big pharma, and, and, you know, that's the thing, so uh, when you talk about wellness, and you talk about, you know, the yoga community, and, and the dialogue that's happening there, I've been really impressed with some of the conversations you've had on conspirituality with like Sean Korn and such um, how did you know because there's an inherent distrust of big pharma in that community that's why so many people flock to uh, a more holistic or alternative or organic diet way of living uh, there, there's an inherent distrust of the system and establishment with medicine western medicine um, yet uh, as you so duly noted with the uh, benzos, yet uh, there there seems to be uh, an outright rejection of all science across the board, at great detriment to people, uh, many of whom are, uh, you know, like Dr. Northrup, you know, well-educated, world-renowned practitioners. Uh, before they got quote unquote red pilled. So how, uh, outside of drug use, uh, which you, we discussed early and I appreciate you taking it there. How did we get from, from a place of, you know, whether it was enlightenment or awareness of health, holistic, uh, routines, practices, diets to this extreme total rejection of, of medicine, science and well-being? Just in, how, how did that leap happen?
1: I, I think it comes about from marketing. I'm reading a book called Clean by James Hamlin right now, and he's a, a, a doctor. He's also He runs an Atlantic podcast, and he's an editor at The Atlantic, and I've been a big fan of his work. And it talks about the, the, the marketing of soap and how what we know as, as marketing today all began because people were trying to figure out how to sell soap. And soap is just a couple of ingredients, no matter where you go in the world. So in order for you to sell soap, you have to make it seem like it's something that it's not. You have to package it, you have to promote it, you have to make claims that are unsubstantiated because soap is just soap, it's a couple of things. And that juggernaut of marketing that that became part of the holistic landscape of wellness in America has influenced everything ever since. If you think about what it means to be healthy, what it takes to be healthy, what do you really need? You need to sleep seven to nine hours a day, so we say eight as a you know, general, but seven to nine is generally what most people, some people can really do well more, some people actually need less, like that's all, but that's the general population. You need to stay hydrated. You need to eat a, a good balance of macronutrients, right? Don't eat too many carbs because they turn to sugars in your body. Eat a good amount of fat. Eat some protein. And then exercise. Get your heart rate up above a certain threshold there a couple of times a week, even if that's fast walking or whatever it is, and load your body. Lift some weights. Pick things up off the ground. Like, like Challenge your skeleton. Make your bones strong so your muscles are strong as well. And try not to be too stressed out, right? Take some time to not be plugged in all the time. Let yourself daydream. Give yourself breaks. And then also focus and do your work. I mean, that, that's the parameters of what health entails. It's not sexy. It's not going to promise you to lose 20 pounds in a week. It's not going to optimize your brain capacity, And all of these things that we use to sell all of these products. I'm on a Twitter feed right now with uh, Jules Evans, uh, who is the guy who wrote about conspirituality that I found, which is how I found out about the term. It actually comes from a 2011 paper. But he was on the podcast a few weeks ago, and we stay in touch, and we talk on Twitter and email. and, And Matthew, my podcast partner, was brought into that feed. And Matthew always said something which I absolutely love is that the wellness industry, the product is aspiration. Right? There's nothing, it's not like I can go online and order a yoga mat. If I want to order a yoga mat, like that's a physical product that comes when when I order it. Even if I want to order some reishi powder or some matcha, like that's a physical product. But in general, the sales pitch of wellness is aspiration. You can be better than you are today if you take this product. This will help you do this. And when that mindset infiltrated yoga and wellness at large, which started again in the 40s, but really in the 80s when products became a thing and then it's just keep, continue to track along that way ever since. Uh, what happened in quarantine were, was that, and I was affected by this because I've been teaching public classes for 17 years, um, a lot of people who are in this industry who make a living in public all of a sudden could not make their living anymore. And I know it's hard. Like, my wife and I, took a she's an events director at a hotel, so she doesn't have a career anymore. She's pivoting. So financially, this has been a rough year. I'm fortunate that I have my other world and that it's mostly on my laptop so that I can work and continue to pull in some income. So we were fortunate in that sense, but a lot of people weren't, and that's really tough. But if you're accustomed to selling aspiration as a lifestyle and then all of a sudden your revenue streams are no longer open to you? Well, some people noticed early on, and I don't know if if Christiane Northrup is one of them, but we can definitely track her numbers, which Matthew has done eloquently, and look at when they start using hashtags like the Great Awakening and the QAnon adjacent hashtags, well, their social media followings grew by the tens and hundreds of thousands. Rashid Buttar, the the um, the doctor, also noticed that. Like I, I would track his numbers and they like quadrupled in a matter of month when he started going anti vax and five G and all of that. And that happened to a number of figures. So all of a sudden you you have this cottage industry of people whose revenue streams are cut off and then they see that, oh look over here, I can monetize this, and that's what they're doing. So I don't actually know. I'm sure some of these figures truly believe this stuff, but there are going to be hucksters everywhere, and people go where the money is. And sadly, that's just, I think, it's been happening, and that's what I said when we started talking. Like, The conditions for this type of thinking have been going on for many years, but because we're entering a depression next year and because the unemployment rate is not (laughs) really, it's corrected a little bit, but who knows what's going to happen over the next few months. The competition for attention is continuing to be something that people are trying to grab at any way possible. And sadly, people will use whatever tools are at hand to make sure that they don't have to sacrifice the lifestyles they've built for themselves.
0: Oh man, that's so dangerous. And, but eloquently stated, of course, uh, you know, I've been following along and listening to the pod and, and your the various discussions, Jules Evans, um, of course, Lee was an incredible interview as I messaged you about. And uh, there's so many uh, folks that are rising up and kind of trying to combat the noise and the disinformation. Um, it's amazing the symbiosis between us just in general, because I've been lucky and fortunate like yourself to be able to still crank out content and work in a variety of capacities while my partner, fiance, she lost her job at an amazing restaurant in San Francisco. And she's also a holistic nutritionist. That's her passion. And of course, she's been, you know, closely watching these developments and uh, just horrified by some of the people she's known and respected and and looked at as teachers and mentors, et cetera, uh, changing their tune uh, to adhere to the conspiracy theories and ideology that you referenced. And we actually, uh, we live in Oakland, and when the city basically, uh, the day before uh, her restaurant shut down on the 12th, and I think the rest of the city shut down on the 13th of March, we decamped up to where I used to live in Grass Valley with uh, some folks that I know and love and Uh, on this ranch, and it was just five of us for several months, and while it was really rewarding to kind of detach and be able to write and create and live in a yurt, um, one of the women uh, there uh, got pilled really hard, really fast, and we had uh, an up-close and personal view of how an otherwise pretty solid gal uh, with a lot of similar interests, and that's what brought us together, and just watching her unravel with the Alex Jones videos and Fall of the Cabal, and then it was pandemic, and then, you know, it was just all the way down. It was, and it was really uh, difficult in essence for my partner who not only connected with her on a variety of, of just good vibes and working in the garden, but seeing how, you know, somebody's otherwise good intentions could be hijacked and repurposed in such nefarious and, you know, abhorrent ways. And uh, that's what really uh, will deliver me to the QAnon questions, because, uh, or QAnon, I think I just started saying it wrong in the (laughs) beginning, and it just stuck, but whatever. Um, That has been uh, just next level, and I'm talking to you from my fiancé's family home in very rural, very red North Carolina, while uh, my fiancé's aunt, who lives here, is one of the few Democrats in the region, proud and loud. Um, she asked us, point blank, what do we know about QAnon? And we opened this dialogue with this 75-year-old woman that I would have never imagined having. And I had a similar one with my mom when I was just visiting her in the Jersey Shore, et cetera. But we're also having it in our ecstatic dance community and Burning Man camps and festival crew. Um, And, of course, the macro sense, we're having it, you know, by listening to your show. And it, it, it feels like a simulation. The, the, the tenets, what they believe is so preposterous, and the way they've been able to not only peddle the satanic cabal, but fold in, as you noted, the 5G, the anti-vax, all these different, you know, fringe ideologies. And How and why and what about COVID made it so?
1: First off, uh, there's another parallel we have. My wife is from North Carolina. and Her mother lives there. Perfect. (laughs) But the, you know, I remember I taught two classes. I used to teach on Sundays. And uh, I remember teaching at Equinox my kettlebell class and then my yoga class. And everyone was a little skipped out because shutdowns were becoming a real thing. Uh, Everything shut down the following day. And I remember teaching my classes, and then the next day it shut down. And I, re- I remember telling myself, okay, well, prepare to be in your apartment pretty much exclusively for the next 15 months. And the only reason I, ha- I told myself that that piece of information was because I've been studying evolutionary biology for the last 10 years as a passion, out of something that I like. And I know how pandemics work and I knew what had happened previously, and I knew given the last few months of what was building, what was ahead of us. I feel lucky for that. Most people that I knew were like, wow, I hope we can go back to work in two weeks. And I was just shaking my head because we have, as humans, we've done so much work to separate ourselves from nature in order to just be safe. But every technology has its cost. And that's something we don't tend to look at. We look at the benefit but don't always understand the cost. And the cost of indoor heating and electricity and year-round processed food is detrimental to our immune system. And, and, our, and our mental health in general. These trade-offs are worth it in a lot of ways, but in, in some ways when you experience moments of trauma, and especially collective trauma, you have to look at the trade-offs that we've, what we've sacrificed in the process. And one thing we have certain, I talked before about the political landscape, how we sacrificed the old school everyone get in a circle and let's talk about everything, town hall, to just not being politically engaged at all. Well, we've also sacrificed any understanding of science and public health in general and what public health entails. So I would not say that QAnon um, really... When they, from what I can imagine, people who were behind this, they, it's not that they were planning necessarily on the conspiracy theories that they chose on. They were just pushing buttons and found the communities that would listen to them. Because if you notice, 5G was only around for a little bit at a fever pitch. Like, it kind of poked that, and the hornet's nest, it rattled a bit, but then it quieted it down pretty quickly. It's the anti-vaxxers, that marriage, when they got into that community, that's when it took off. The anti-vaxxers and the stay-at-home moms, the education, like the homeschooled children, um, like, tapping into that community what um, is called Pastel Q, right, this very beautifully presented aesthetic on social media, and then you go past the photos and listen to the messages and the hashtags and you find the sex trafficking and the child trafficking uh, conspiracies. You all of a sudden had a population that was already being primed for this type of thinking, even though they didn't realize it, and then they have to stay at home. And like I said earlier, their freedom, the, what they think of as their freedom was taken away from them. But it's always put that way. It's never put in terms of helping other people and understanding that you're trying not to overload the health care system. I worked in an emergency room for two years. I've seen emergency rooms when they get chaotic. And so imagine what happens when you have a pandemic. I can't imagine that. But just knowing from the regular course of life of having worked in an emergency room and seeing it, I can imagine how overwhelming... We already have a broken healthcare system. We know that. There are many reasons to be wary of big pharma. Vaccines are not one of them. And that's where people get tripped up. Because they associate everything to do with big pharma as a problem. And like anything, there's nuance there. And So it's just, I think that QAnon was able to just work its way. I I honestly don't think there was a master plan. I think it just found a community and they took off together. They joined hands and then just went running with it. Because what's different about this and why it's so destabilizing is because there is no leader. There is no cult charismatic figure who's telling you, that the world is going to end on December 10th and that that means that an alien spaceship is going to come and take our souls away and transport it to utopia there are a number of predictions if you've noticed none of them have come true at all if they've come true it's by way of people fitting political circumstances into these very broad strokes that they've created in their Q-drops so there really is no prophecy. There's such an intellectual laziness to this conspiracy that it's laughable. At the very least, the previous ones had some firm dates and some firm ideas about what was going to happen. This one is just completely, logic has been suspended completely with QAnon. And it's... It, it's really sad. Again, you're, you know, I can point back when I mentioned John Birch before, that was the time when Richard Hofstetter wrote the, you know, the, um, his book on anti-intellectualism in America, which, again, has precedent for centuries since his nation's founding. So every era, we've gone through this over and over again. But look at everything that trace one common element of the people who are indoctrinated in QAnon right now. They are anti expert Anti-expert is anti-intellectualism. People who have spent years and decades working in public health and in medicine, you're just saying, you know what, I'm going to listen to this guy on YouTube instead. And he's monetizing that YouTube video. (laughs) And he's probably selling you a product, maybe some liquid gold that's supposed to help you with coronavirus if you get it. You have to look at what the people are selling who are behind the biggest influence because they're all selling something. They have a product, they have a platform, they have a newsletter that's monetized. There's something that they're selling you and they're capturing your attention. Um, So, yeah, I I, I honestly, if there was a grand plan, I, I think that was aborted long ago and they're just kind of winging it right now because everything that I see, it's just like, let's just grab whatever can grab some attention and let's throw that in there and make that part of the plan.
0: Yeah, those just preposterous ideas. There can't be a master plan, but the, the suspension of disbelief is mind boggling. And Q is just steamrolling through and collecting believers. And the role that social media plays in this delusion cannot be overstated. I gotta, I gotta switch gears here and, and touch on something. Cause I was born Jewish. I was raised Jewish in a predominantly Jewish community. I was bar mitzvah in Israel, confirmed, Hebrew school, Jewish summer camps, all that jazz. And yet I no longer practice Judaism in my own path. Uh, I do have a relationship with Creator. And we must acknowledge, you know, as you have already, religion, uh, fundamentalist religion, plays such a big role in all this. And again, I got to say that Ben Lee interview from, uh, your conspirituality podcast, uh, which we'll link in the show notes. Uh, that interview with Ben Lee really nailed a lot of points home. But the, the one that really resonated with me is the paradox of, of the anti-Semitism. Um, because I struggle, uh, you know, I'm outspoken critic of Israel, um, not unlike Ben Lee. And uh, in terms of their behavior and human rights, atrocities, et cetera, And because of that, I am often ostracized by some Jewish family or friends uh, at odds with my people in that regard. Yet, in spite of that divide and my own path carrying me away from Judaism, I find the anti-Semitic tropes abhorrent, the demonization and the whole George Soros angle, the repurposed blood libel. Uh, the aforementioned wellness communities' ideas of purity and perfection. It's just horrifying. I'm frightened and I'm troubled by the resurgence of anti-Semitic ideas and ideologies that are parroted by Q and the like. Totally abhorrent. And uh, naturally, I take personal offense. The proliferation of this prejudice is not lost on me because it's everywhere. And I gotta ask you, Derek, it's hard to imagine the same people that I shared an ecstatic dance with or experienced a psychedelic adventure or just uh enjoyed some of the sociocultural festival things of that nature. Those same people are espousing these ideas of prejudice, hatred, anti-Semitism. these people they're so pilled it's turned them anti-semitic or is this a mental illness Uh, was that friendship or those experiences a facade they hated me as a jew all along or is it a clinical depression thing or manic behavior there's just a disconnect here and i struggle with it
1: i i think humans are tribal i mean again we we when the conditions are right and everything's going along okay, we don't tend to notice our biases and they don't come out because there's no reason for them to come out. For some people, of course, they're always there, but, but in, in moments where we have to shore up and we're left to our own devices and we can only rely on a few people, then they're really gonna come out. That, the anti-Semitism one has been hard on me because Sonic I referenced earlier, the three of us. Bill is Jewish, Fabian is Muslim, and I'm an atheist. And so you have three different I don't have a tradition, but there I mean there's a tradition of thought behind that. you know, and I have a. I have a degree in religion because I'm fascinated by it. But I think it's because I've just studied so many of them. I'm like, well, they all kind of claim to be true. so let's just let's just call it storytelling and, and celebrate that instead of getting caught up too much in the dogma of it. Uh, My music project, Earthrise Sound System, my partner Duke is Jewish, my ex-wife was Jewish, so I was around um, that community for a long time. And when I see the tropes about Jews as compared to just being around Jewish people, there is a disconnect. It's just purely fictional and imaginary. And it, it has persisted for thousands of years, and the sad thing, when you track it politically, it, it comes up during times of upheaval. They have been the scapegoat literally for thousands of years now, for many different countries to point at, because the people in power want to be able to be like, you know what, things are messed up right now. It's them over there. And when you're when you're, you become the scapegoat once, and it works. People are going to stick with that tactic. So on a political level, it's not surprising at all. And and. I, I, I try to avoid, you know, comparisons to what happened in Germany because Nazism is such a, you know, people people just pull it out very quickly and there's, you know, Godwin's law that once it's invoked that, you know, the, the argument is over at that point. But the parallel I want to draw is how long that took. It didn't happen quickly. It took, Hitler, Hitler was talking about this in the teens. So it, it took 20 years for that to unfold. And again, the conditions had to be right for it. And with the economics of Germany at the time, he took advantage of a crumbling economy and society, which is very much what's happening right now. Uh, what you speak of particularly, I again just think it's, I, I, and because I don't have an answer, but I imagine it's just ignorance. It's just pure ignorance. It's ignorance, first of all, of not recognizing that QAnon is rooted in anti-Semitism, so if you are actually going to study and track the beliefs that you're engaging in, you should know where they originate, so that's first. And second, it, it, is, it is our tribal nature, and people would always choose to be wrong than to like, to just come up with the most absurd claims than to admit that they're wrong. And there's going to be a lot of healing that's done at the end of this, and I don't think we're anywhere close to the end of this. I'm actually, I remain concerned about what's going to happen in the next few months specifically, but then going on from here, because if Trump wins, that's one problem. But if Biden wins, there's a whole other set of problems that we have to contend with, because so much has been let out of the bottle right now that we cannot we cannot fathom what's ahead in the months. I, I feel like we've just been at the appetizer phase and we're just heading to the main course right now. Uh, but I will conclude this with this part by saying that um, one of my very closest friends is Black. I write about this in the book because uh, we have been through a number of experiences together. I have been pulled over by the cops with him more, like almost, all the times I've had trouble with the cops, it was specifically because I've been with him. Just with him as my, one of my closest friends. That's it. We never did anything wrong. We were never charged. Nothing ever happened. But we were harassed just for being together. And that, even that minor experience opened my eyes to what he's had to live through for his entire life. And that also changes your perspective. So if you have the lived experience of what people go through your eyes can't be shut to that and i still think that the levels of privilege that people deal with this in this country without recognizing the real problems that they have like when people say we live in a post-racial society or anything it's ridiculous and we usually focus on uh, african-american latinx and you know there's the LGBTQ community but Judaism, Jews have always been in that as well, and they, you know, at times like this, it just comes to the surface again, and it needs to be discussed and hopefully moves past at some point, but there's no precedent for that, unfortunately.
0: Indeed, indeed. It could be ignorance for certain, but I can't help but wonder if it's a mental illness because it stings, the anti-Semitism, and of course the racism, just seeing that unfold over the past few years, and really all of our lives, but uh, brought into focus, especially this summer. And I'm glad you transitioned to peoples of color and related those experiences you had with your friend. Uh, Ever since the George Floyd murder and the uprisings and awakenings and protests we've seen in demonstrations around the country and around the world, uh, I've dedicated this podcast to sharing black stories in the music and festival communities as a matter of fact you're the first non person of color i've had as a guest since the spring and uh i just realized everything that i adore from music to culture fashion sports and swag it all comes from the contributions the voluminous contributions of black people black artists etc i felt a sense of responsibility or maybe it, Maybe it was a tinge of white guilt uh, to turn the focus of this show into telling their stories. Uh, but we as white people have to have the hard conversations and realizations al- along the way and amongst ourselves. Um, and that within the same wellness and festival community that we're discussing, uh, there's just a ton of racism, a shit ton. It's hard to reconcile. And I know that you're having this dialogue all over the place in your community and on your podcast and written about it and experienced it. And so we see this stuff like the All Lives Matter rhetoric from the yoga wellness community or in the festival world. And it's perplexing the lack of empathy for the struggle or the not embracing and in essence resisting Black Lives Matter. You know, I expect that from the MAGA types, you know, the beer can on the forehead and whatnot. I was prepared for that kind of climate and environment and the tenor of the moment with the election and all with with the 45ers, the Trumpers. But the yogis and the spiritual voices and teachers, I would have never guessed. The people that I know from Burning Man or Ecstatic Dance, the festival world, plant medicine rituals are fucking racists. But now I come to know that you've been aware and along for some
1: time. Super frustrating. It, it, you know, the all lives matter, that, that spun up very quickly this year. And it's just, how tone deaf are you? Like, how can you not understand? Like, do you have to have, do you have to say or be a part of everything? That's what I feel like when I see that. It's like, it always comes back to you, doesn't it? Like, you just have to make a statement right now. You know, and this is something that I I said when um, I I you know because initially Matthew and Julian were guests on my podcast and then we broke off and started Conspiracy Show we were like we had two weeks of great conversations and we're like hey why don't we just keep this going and that's how the new pod started and I, and I knew going in I'm like we would encounter some minor resistance and that's what it has remained as being three white men talking about this um, and. But for the most part, it's been overwhelmingly positive. And when we do get criticism, it's like that's why we open up the podcast. We're having our first guest host next week who's going to join us for the entire episode. But besides that, we've interviewed a broad range of people because we've all built our platforms on ourselves. And now that we're building this together, we're going to showcase as many people as possible with differing ideologies and to get experts in their fields to educate us on things we're not aware of to try to make a cohesive narrative out of it. And that's what you should be doing. You should be reaching out and talking to people. And understanding your lane, I don't take, I don't, I, I understand white guilt conceptually. I understand that, what it is. But I, at this point, if people don't recognize the stakes of what we're experiencing as a democracy, And instead of infighting with people who are trying to accomplish the same goals, working together, because there's one thing that I know, and I brought this up earlier when I said specifically that the Christian fundamentalists, the evangelical movement, started in the 90s to train people to be lawyers and judges and politicians to get across their messaging. There's a reason Trump's base has remained at 40% or so the entire time because they're identified, they're, they're united. They don't care what the leader says. They're united by that. And one of the biggest problems liberals has always had is so much infighting in the group because someone's not woke enough, or they're this or that. And that is going to continue to plague well-meaning and well-intentioned people if they can't get it together and just get over that argument to recognize the power structures and then understand that we're all trying to dismantle them and create a better system. But if we can't actually have the conversation, if we can't move beyond that bickering in the community to go out and then combat the real enemy, we're never going to make traction. Because as is well known, Trump has appointed more judges than anyone in modern history that are all trying to dismantle what liberals have put into place ever since the New Deal. And it is being done right now. And it's just, it's really frustrating at, at certain points. Um, so so it doesn't surprise me that people have troubles identifying beyond their particular community, but that is something that has to change if we're going to combat this. Because we are in a fight right now and I know that in general this community has always embraced universality but even Gandhi would say that, you know what, if the war comes, you have to fight it. Like, yeah, try to avoid it, but when it's there, fight it. Don't avoid it when you have to fight. That's where we are right now. So we have to fight. So maybe we didn't want to, but we got to own up and then actually do it at this point.
0: Indeed, we do, from your lips to jaw ears. And fight, we must. Unfortunately, we must fight you mentioned on your pod that you donated to four other candidates before Biden and that you had your reservations in the primary season, but have curbed that kind of commentary to get behind his candidacy in a major way, as have many of your peers. So I hear you and uh, we got to unite the clans. Uh I want to get one more point in as we're well over an hour and you've been so generous with your time and your energy. But Derek, I did want to touch on social media. Well, we've brought it up a few times already. Because as journalists, social media changed the game. Facebook, to a lesser extent for me, Instagram or Twitter, but they're essential engines for disseminating our work in various capacities, media and mediums. Whatever it is I do... Uh, I've just kind of made it happen through the power of social media. It's how we get our articles out there and engage and have discussions after the fact. And it does magical things connecting people. Just look at us. I mean, social is how I found and connected with you, from Conspirituality Podcast to seeking and reading you in Big Think. Then I saw Hannah Frazier, Hannah Mermaid. Uh, she posted about your show. Uh, I've had her sister Jasmine, who DJs as Naughty Princess. She's been on this podcast before. And uh, on Hannah's post, I commented about your Bangra Crunk aside on one episode. Uh, I think a co-host of yours tagged you. Uh, you and I had some messages exchanged. And now here we are having this conversation. So there's good attributes to social media. It brings us together, and this has happened, you know, exponentially. Uh, But to quote Jersey's own Redman, there is a dark side with social media. As we've seen in the Social Dilemma film, of course the brainwashing and radicalization of Q, the algorithms and advertisements amplifying the anti-vaxxers, peddling conspiracy theories, etc., I can't help but lose hours on end on the QAnon Casualties site on Reddit and in the division of families and communities and the like. The common thread of this tragic, extreme red-pilling is without question social media. It's at the root of how we got here in 2020. But again, Derek, you seem to have created quite a discipline for maximizing your impact and voice on social without getting bogged down in the disinformation or bullshit. You promote your work, your show, your music with Earthrise, your yoga, movement instruction, endeavors, and so much more. And I know you've discussed uh, these methods on your podcast and in print, uh, your veritable how-tos of healthy social media habits. So Uh, Before we go, uh, if you wouldn't mind, please impart some of that wisdom and methodology for those of us who seek to focus and distill our use of social in constructive, positive ways. If we wanted to adopt such a discipline, uh, how do we get there?
1: Well, I'll I'll reference one of our episodes where I interviewed uh, Imran Ahmed, who is the uh, founder of the Center for Countering Digital Hate in the UK, and he had produced a about a 40-page paper on how social media platforms have benefited to the tune of about a billion dollars from anti-vaccination groups and specifically from companies that use the algorithms to target anti-vaxxers to sell products to. Uh, And then also anti-vaccination groups uh, uh, advertising on social media. So that that was over the past year about a billion dollars. And we were talking about it. It's, it's something I had learned, and now I completely stopped because of that. Um, I learned early on by trial and error, because I engaged with people, and, and all that left me was frustrated, and I realized nothing was done. Uh, I have written some articles. I, I remember two specifically from Big Sync, um years ago. Big Think used to have a comment section. And I wrote an article that was skeptical of Osho and somehow people just, I had over a thousand negative comments of people just threatening me, coming after me which was this is well before the documentary this is probably like six years ago uh but it was all well known and all it was only a rehashing of all the wonderful reporting that the Oregonian had already done I was just kind of writing a summation of what had happened and reminding people about cult, about the dangers of cult leaders and then one was on homeopathy which I have a personal grievance with and then people just came after me on that one as well and I realized that you know trying to like go back and forth on the medium of, of a screen just it's, it's not effective it's doesn't work. But what Imran Ahmed had told me was that if, somebody, if I go onto somebody's feed and they say, okay, I'm, I'm, the Great Awakening is coming, QAnon is here, blah, blah, and they're a friend of mine. If I comment on their post and then we start going back and forth, I am amplifying their message. So the, the medium, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is, is going to read that as, oh, you know, people are paying attention to this post, let's, let's circulate it to more people. But if someone comes onto my feed when I'm posting some, what I hope is quality information, and I will also admit that I am a sarcastic person, you're from Jersey, so I'm sure you <laughs> we probably, I'm going to guess, share at least some <laughs> of that. Sure. But, but I my sarcasm is my native language and sometimes I post it and there is no sarcasm font, so some people will be like, wait a second, and you know, I have to put out that. But for the most part I try to put out quality information and if somebody comes onto my feed contesting it, well I'll engage with them there for a little while because they're amplifying my signal. And overall they're just helping me boost in the algorithms and that means that the article is getting shared more because of that. And when you look at what I said about, the, you know, the, the, the war that's happening, it is a war for attention. And the medium that we're using is the media channels that we have, and hopefully it doesn't spill out into actual violence, although it does as we're seeing an uptick in. So if you want to think about being strategic, you're wasting your time going on other people's seats and talking about it. You're, you're actually helping that person. Uh, Mickey Willis in the Plandemic is indicative of this, of just how his signal got boosted in every direction because of that terrible propaganda film, because that's what it was. And if you take that mindset, it will help give you some framework of etiquette on how to deal with social media. I I do like you. I love technology. My father became a computer programmer in the '60s. I grew up with computers. Uh, I've worked with them my entire career. I think they're fascinating and fabulous, and I love technology in so many ways. But as I always say, if you love something, you should also be critical of it. There are many things that I absolutely love, but when I have a problem with it, I will speak up because I want to make that thing better. And if you want to make things better right now, the best you can do is to find quality information, share it, And don't go, don't go, if someone you care about is posting something and you know it's propaganda or it's wrong, private message them or text them or call them, try to speak to them. Don't get on their feet because that's only going to aggravate them, most likely, and then it's going to create a rift and you're also boosting their signal, you know. I I say this a lot on the podcast and I think it's true. The way that we act on social media is not how we generally act in person. We were recently on a conference and there were people who definitely didn't feel, uh, when I say we, the three of us like spirituality, it was our hour that we were featured. The first 40 minutes was our discussion and the last 20 was open to everyone on the Zoom call, which was 25 people or so. And A few of the people definitely did not agree with us. They were completely like, no, we, you know. But here's the thing, they talked to us because we could see each other on Zoom. They talked to us like humans. They didn't get heated at all. Everyone was friendly and respectful. When we were applied and when I was like, I don't think you're right on this and I'll explain why, they smiled and nodded along and then we got back and forth because that's how humans are meant to interact. And so take that into consideration when you're engaging with people. When you're writing something, picture yourself in the room with that person and being like, would I say this to this person right now in this way? And if the answer is no, then you shouldn't be posting it. And that, that's sort of, the, sort of the social media hygiene that we call it that, that needs to be understood and recognized if we want to actually have fruitful discussions instead of just yelling at one another on a screen.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Man, that's good medicine. You know, sometimes I do fall prey to engaging with the the folks spreading the disinformation. It just, you know, gets me charged up and plays on those emotions. So it never really does go all too well, I gotta I gotta admit. Nobody's really communicating, just typing away. Uh but I appreciate those ideas. I know my listeners will as well. Um I wanna thank you for breaking it down for us in a language that we can easily overstand. You're a gentleman and a scholar and I thank you for coming on the up full life podcast. I got to say we left a lot on the table. I hope uh, there's an opportunity where we can catch up down the road, maybe in person in a post COVID world. Uh, if there is such a thing next time, I, I hope we can talk more music, more yoga, more psychedelics, and maybe a tad less hell hell in a (laughs) handbasket. But, uh, Again, thank you for your time and your energy, Derek Barris. Uh, Lastly, what's the best way to find you to buy the new book on psychedelics? Check out Conspirituality or, you know, your writing with Big Think, your music with Earthrise, yoga, all the cool shit you're into. What's the best way to get you?
1: everything is linked from DerekBarris.com so all my social handles all my projects that, that's sort of where the central point where if anyone wants to explore uh, I have a weekly newsletter um, you know a, a, a free level and then I do original writing on a on a paid level and I also offer stuff there so there's the, everything can be found there but if you just want to get transmissions just sign up on the free level and I, I try to I, I kinda recap the podcast every Thursday about what we're talking about and then talk about some of the other things I'm working on. So that's a great way to find out everything going on in our sphere.
0: Right on. And I dig the playlists. Um, I really dug that Heart Shaped Box uh, re- yeah. redo was so cool, man. And I Yeah, check lo- out
1: Amber Mark. Check out her, her her record her EP from two years ago. She's fantastic.
0: Right on. We'll do. Maybe we'll play a snippet of it uh, on the show, as a matter of fact.
1: Yeah. There's actually the, the person that, uh, we well, you've seen the Jamiroquai before. The person that is producing Amber Mark is the founder, one of the founders of Giant Step, who's produ- who got us into the Jamiroquai show. So there's even a connection there. But you'll dig her music. She's a, kind of a throwback to that era.
0: Word, yeah. I like that. Acid jazz style. That is, like, pivotal for me. And Again, a conversation for another time but dude thank you deep bow uh, and I hope that uh, down the road we can do it again but in the meantime thank you for your time and energy
1: it was great talking and it was nice to put a, at least a voice to the, to the screen messages we've been sharing so, so I really appreciate it thanks for taking some time out to talk
0: yeah. likewise uh, you have a great one man Yes, indeedy. I want to say a huge, huge thank you. Large up. Big up yourself. Derek Barris. Wow. lot to unpack there. And so honored that we could have that conversation on this show, the Upful Life Podcast. His new book that we referenced, Hero's Dose, The Case for Psychedelics in Ritual and Therapy. By Derek Barris is out now and you can find that and all of his other endeavors at Derek and we made a few notations or I referenced a couple of interviews from the Conspirituality podcast so uh, for your notes uh, the Ben Lee interview that I'm quite uh, high on was found on episode 20 Entitled "The Second Wave Pastel Q Goes Undercover," uh, Jules Evans, who coined the term "conspirituality" in a 2011 paper, uh, he was on episode 18. Jules Evans, from psych meds to red pills. Sean Corn, uh, she's an internationally acclaimed yoga teacher and public speaker. And she had a powerful rebuke of Q and all the associated troubling conspiracies with that cult. That's episode 17, The Politics of QN and Spirituality. That also includes author and political commentator Jared Yates Sexton. And Jared Yates Sexton is responsible for my deep dive into this rabbit hole. Uh, in addition to watching the uh, implosion of uh, s- different groups of friends and communities, and watching people close to me fall prey and victim to many of these conspiracy theories, uh, Jared Yates Sexton is responsible for the cult of the Shining City theory, which uh, my man John Speece, the drummer of Brownout and uh, Grupo Fantasma and Money Chicha, Spies is the man, and he will come on this podcast one day, I assure you. But he put me on to Jared Yates Sexton, and that, that fellow really uh, ignited the fuse. So both Sean Korn and Jared Yates Sexton are found on episode 17, The Politics of Qian and Spirituality, on the Conspirituality podcast. And I could go on. Every episode is worth your time. These fellows are doing the Lord's work and in Derek's case, uh, he may not believe in the Lord, but he's still working for her. That said, uh, just please, uh, interested in hearing everybody's feedback on this uh, somewhat of a different episode of the Up for Life podcast, and I appreciate everybody who tuned in and has made it this far and is willing to do the work, uh, because it must be done, and Thank you to Derek Barris and, of course, uh, Matthew and Julian, his co-hosts, for creating and disseminating uh, the Important Imperative Conspirituality Podcast. And in the background, you're hearing Sound Tribe Sector 9 with Karsh Kalei, as we talked about in the beginning of the interview. So this is from Burkefest 2002, which I went through. To with my dear friend Robbie WK. We uh, both tag-teamed the show or festival review for Jam Bass. It was maybe the third time I'd seen Tr- Soundtribe, and it was uh, my introduction to Karsh Kalei. and I thought it'd be appropriate to play a little bit of this. It's uh, the end of Move My Peeps, uh, the old version for those uh, Sector Nine heads out there before they Surgically removed the drum and bass section. So this is STS 9 with Karsh Kalei at Berkfest and also a vocalist named Vishal um, Just an incredible live music experience from the halcyon days and then uh, We're gonna get into the vibe junkie jam Spend all this time talking about the interview uh, but I really thought it was perfect that we heard from Dimmon Saints for the first time in a long time Uh, they don't even live in Oakland in the Dimmon district anymore release is down there in Los Angeles and Antenna finally after two decades I think decamped to Portland, Oregon but through the magic of the interwebs they were able to co-create this music I'm sure they got together a time or two but uh, it's a deep Deep cut and a throwback to the old vibes. Dimmon Saints is still my favorite electronic music project ever. And you're about to hear just why. A very politically and spiritually charged number called Redemption. You can find it on their Bandcamp, Spotify, etc. Dimmon Saints Redemption, the vibe junkie jam for episode 38 of the Upful Life podcast. I'm your host, B Getz. Thank you, Derek Barris. Thank you, Conspirituality. Goodbye, job blessed, and we'll see you next time.